Welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is David Rayburn. Today I'm here with Dr. Vanderpool. He's an assistant uh, professor of pediatrics and specializes in pediatric gastroenterology at Riley. Welcome, Dr. Vanderpool. Thank you. So a couple months ago, you gave us a fantastic lecture at noon conference on vitamins. And when I heard that, I was thinking, this is high yield, this needs to be recorded. So I approached you and you graciously accepted to sit down and record with us. So today we're going to talk about vitamins. I think we broke it into our fat-soluble vitamins, water-soluble, and then also some trace elements, what deficiencies look like. So if you could walk us through that, and feel free to start wherever you'd like. Okay. Sounds great. Well, we'll start with fat-soluble vitamins, looking at vitamin A, D, E, and K. And then after that, we'll go through the water-soluble vitamins and trace elements. A few key principles to remember just with vitamin and mineral absorption in general is for the vast majority of nutrients, they'll be absorbed into the jejunum with a couple of exceptions. Iron and copper are uniquely absorbed in the duodenum or the first part of the small intestine. And then B12 and folate are absorbed primarily in the ileum along with bile salts. That becomes important uh, with certain disease states in the duodenum. You can see uh, changes in iron and copper absorption with celiac disease, which often affects that area first. You can also see issues with iron and copper absorption in kids that are fed jejunally or are not fed uh, through the oral or gastrostomy route. In the ileum, of course, with short bowel syndrome or surgical loss of that area, or in kiddos with Crohn's disease that have primary ileal disease, those can be classic questions on boards uh, to set you up for a B12 or folate deficiency and can also uh, be a classic area of disease involvement that can predispose you for fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies as bile salts are absorbed in the ileum as well. The colon, for the most part, uh, really is responsible for water and electrolyte absorption. You don't get a lot of caloric or nutrient absorption from the colon. You can have some short-chain fatty acid absorption from malabsorbed carbohydrates, but other than that, the colon is primarily water and electrolyte-related. So when we're thinking about problems with the ileum, we need to start thinking about B12, folate, and then also bile salts play a role, so our fat, our fat, fat soluble. solubles can be an issue as well. Yep. Excellent. Yep. So um, our first fat-soluble vitamin we'll talk about is vitamin A. Uh, it's important to keep in mind there are two forms of vitamin A, provitamin A, which is your beta-carotene, and preformed vitamin A, which is a group of retinoid compounds. Pro-vitamin A or beta-carotene is found in your green leafy vegetables, uh, your orange vegetables, yellow vegetables, sweet potatoes, carrots, classically, squash. Preformed vitamin A will be supplements, um, and that's important to keep in mind when considering toxicity. Uh, other sources of preformed vitamin A are liver, kidney, and egg yolk. Vitamin A uh, function is mainly in vision, and it's mo one of the most common causes of preventable night blindness in children. It's also important in immunity, cell differentiation, and growth. Deficiency is seen with vitamin A, and it often causes night blindness, which is one of the first manifestations I think we're all aware of. But you also have a lot of other ophthalmologic manifestations. You can have dryness of the eyes and irritation. The tot spots are a classic visual diagnosis. Uh, these are white plaques or spots in the eye itself, and it's accumulation of dead epithelial cells and microbial cells. It can progress vitamin A deficiency partial vision recovery, especially if vitamin A deficiency is corrected early. 
From a deficiency standpoint, you also want to keep in mind that vitamin A is important in immune response, so you can have a depressed immune response with vitamin A deficiency. However, vitamin A supplementation has only been uh, found to be helpful in uh, really just measles. It's really not recommended to be uh, supplemented in other cases of uh, infections or suspected immune deficiency. The AAP and WHO reckon A uh, supplementation if infected with measles, especially with uh, pneumonia, as vitamin A supplementation can lead to a 60% mortality risk reduction with measles. Toxicity, as we mentioned, is primarily seen only when the preformed vitamin A is taken in. It is very rare. Provitamin A or beta carotene is a major ingested form. So you can classically see some kids who eat a lot of vegetables or carrots have that orange discoloration. That is not associated with toxicity. The one thing you want to make sure is that they're not jaundiced, of course. The orange discoloration of the skin is not associated with vitamin A toxicity. You can see vitamin A toxicity when the preformed vitamin A is taken in in supplement form, and occasionally the test question will be a large ingestion of liver or chronic liver ingestion. I remember something about polar bear liver. Polar bear liver, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So toxicity can be manifested with dry skin, alopecia, definitely causes uh, um, liver toxicity, and the kids can have hepatomegaly. It can progress to cirrhosis, especially if uh, chronic ingestion occurs, and can cause veno-occlusive disease. You also can have uh, neurologic manifestations, including nausea, headache, irritability, I think vitamin D is probably one of the more common fat-soluble vitamins that's tested uh, extensively, and for good reason. We do know that vitamin D and its uses extend far beyond the bone, and uh, we're starting to think that vitamin D is likely more of a hormone than a a classic vitamin. But uh, it's important to know the metabolism of vitamin D. So vitamin D is obtained either from the diet or uh, from sunlight conversion of uh, 7-deoxydehydrocholesterol Uh, in the skin. Both of these processes create uh, vitamin D3 typically, which is then transported to the liver and 25-hydroxylated within the liver. This creates 25-OH vitamin D, which is the major circulating metabolite of vitamin D, and that's what is used to measure vitamin D status. It's important to remember, though, that while we measure that, that is not the active metabolite of vitamin D. That 25-OH vitamin D is then transported to the kidney, and it's again 1-hydroxylated in the kidney to the active form, which is 125-OH2 vitamin D. So it's important to remember that we measure 25-OH vitamin D, not 125-OH vitamin D, even uh, though the 125-OH2 vitamin D or calcitriol is the active form. That process within the kidney is regulated by parathyroid, calcium, and phosphorus plasma levels. And then that uh, calcitriol or 125-OH needs uh, calcium and phosphorus absorption from the intestines and uh, stimulates osteoblasts to become osteoclasts, which release calcium and phosphorus from bone. So a lot of physiologic roles for that calcitriol after it has been 125-hydroxylated in the kidneys. So when we're testing for a deficiency, we're looking at the 25-OHD. But if we're supplementing, we're supplementing with calcitriol, which is the 125. Yeah, so we actually supplement with vitamin D2 or vitamin D3, which is the uh, uh, ergocalciferol or cholecalciferol. And those are the forms that are then hydroxylated in the liver. You can supplement with calcitriol. That is the active form, but that will not improve your vitamin D status. 
And some kids with chronic renal disease, for example, or chronic liver disease, where they can't convert dietary supplements into um, hydroxylated forms, you can give calcitriol to achieve the metabolic effects of vitamin D. But supplementing calcitriol will not improve your overall vitamin D status. So we do supplement with ergocalciferol or cholecalciferol, but both of those uh, molecules require that hydroxylation process both in the liver and in the kidneys. Oh, so good, good question. To yeah. I wanted to mention a little bit about sunlight. I think we all kind of know that you do need sunlight for vitamin D, but I think we often lose sight that a lot of uh, factors play a role in that. Clouds can affect UVB conversion of vitamin D and may reduce uh, conversion by 50%. Uh, the shade can reduce by 60%. The time of day is also important. Any sunscreen SPF uh, 8 or above can reduce vitamin D conversion. Uh, skin melanin content also affects this, and so darker-skinned individuals are less likely to convert vitamin D in their skin. Uh, it's thought that Asians may require up to three times, and African Americans may require up to six to ten times the amount of exposure to sunlight compared to Caucasians for equal vitamin D synthesis. When we factor all of that in, it's really difficult to uh, predict the amount of sunlight exposure that's in, that an individual is needed. And that's why the AAP and the NIH uh, strongly recommend supplementation for the most part in people at risk for vitamin D deficiency or with vitamin, documented vitamin D deficiency. It's thought that a light-skinned individual would need about 5 to 30 minutes of heavy skin exposure between 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., but you have to uh, factor into that uh, the risk-benefit ratio of uh, daily skin exposure. And uh, as we mentioned, all the other factors that can occur or that can uh, complicate vitamin D conversion. Another one that I think people have a lot of uh, misinformation on is the dietary intake of vitamin D. So very few foods naturally contain vitamin D. So fish, fish oil, and egg yolk are really the only foods that naturally contain vitamin D. Dairy does not naturally contain vitamin D. So vitamin D is fortified in dairy, but really milk is probably the only dairy product that is consistently fortified with vitamin D. Yogurt, cheese, butter, creams, other things oftentimes do not contain vitamin D. The supplements that we mentioned before, vitamin D2 is ergocalciferol, vitamin D3 is cholecalciferol. Those are both forms that require that hydroxylation process. Those two will both improve your vitamin D status outside of the rare uh, instance where there's uh, progressive liver disease and inability to convert to 25-OH vitamin D. Vitamin D2 and D3, they're thought to be generally equivalent, but it's thought that vitamin D2 can be slightly less potent at a high dose. And so when we're using those high-dose supplements, we often will use vitamin D3 or cholecalciferol. The measurement of vitamin D, as we mentioned, is 25-OH vitamin D levels. Less than 12 is considered deficient and high risk of uh, rickets and osteomalacia. 12 to 20 nanograms per ml is considered uh, insufficient, and 20 to 100 nanograms per milliliter is considered sufficient. In individuals who are either insufficient or deficient, um, you want to supplement at a higher level, and that can vary based on age. But in general, the AAP guidelines are that all children should receive 600 units per day if they're greater than 12 months. It's important to keep in mind that breastfed infants um, or infants with poor intake of formula are recommended at least 400 units per day. 
And uh, important to keep in mind that you require about 33 ounces or one liter of normal infant formula to get that 400 units per day. So if you have a formula-fed infant, don't overlook vitamin D, especially if they just don't meet that 33 ounces uh, per day intake. Adults are typically recommended 600 to 1,000 units per day. The other thing I often like to mention is that um, milk is fortified with vitamin D, but there's only 100 units of vitamin D per cup of standard milk, and that includes both uh, dairy and non-dairy forms of milk, as non-dairy forms of milk are becoming more and more popular. They're all supplemented almost identical. The reason why I like to mention that is that then is 400 units per quart, and for children, which require 600 units per day, they would have to take one and a half quarts per day. As we all know from our clinical rounds, if you take that much milk per day, you're going to be at a very high risk of iron deficiency, and I typically recommend children only take no more than one to two uh, cups of milk per day. And so with that recommendation in mind, most children will be low on their vitamin D intake with milk alone. If they have uh, no other sources of vitamin D or in some of those high-risk factors for vitamin D deficiency, you want to consider supplementation even in older children. So vitamin D deficiency uh, is something that you'll want to take some time and familiarize yourself outside of this uh, podcast as well. There's a lot of visual diagnoses and tables associated with vitamin D deficiency that are important to know. But in general, vitamin D deficiency is uh, classified by rickets, and uh, rickets is a failure of mineralization of growing bone and cartilage. It can be asymptomatic or can have a variety of bony changes. You can have bowed legs, which is genuvalgum, or knock knees, which is genuvarum. You can have kyphosis or curvature of the thoracic spine. You can see widening of the wrists and ankles. And then there's a few visual diagnoses that are important to know about. There's rachitic rosary, which is enlargement of the costochondral junction along the chest wall. Harrison's groove is a horizontal depression along the chest where the diaphragm pulls the weakened chest wall. Then there's also craniotabes, which is a thinning of the skull. It's often described as feeling like a ping pong ball uh, when you depress the skull. I've never actually done that and wouldn't recommend anyone do that, but um, that is the classic uh, description. But there are a lot of visual diagnoses with rickets, and I'd really encourage you to look those up. Um, there's a great pediatrics and review article on rickets and vitamin D deficiency that would go over a lot of these visual diagnoses. And often test questions will um, utilize these visual diagnoses in describing a clinical scenario of vitamin D deficiency. And for those of you who aren't following us on Twitter yet, it's at Peds in a Pod, and we'll make sure to put these images up on the Twitter uh, so you guys can take a look at them as well. So that's at Peds in a Pod. The biochemical changes is something else that you also want to take a look at, a table that will summarize the biochemical changes in vitamin D deficiency. Parathyroid is often increased. Calcium can be normal or mildly depressed in most cases, and alkaline phosphatase level is also increased. In severe and advanced forms of vitamin D deficiency, you'll start to see hypophosphatemia and hypocalcemia. Um, Hypocalcemia often is manifested during periods of rapid growth when calcium needs are increased and can cause seizures, tetany, apnea, hypotonia, hyperreflexia are kind of the classic symptoms. With regards to hypophosphatemia, of course, you can see weakness and difficulty standing. You can also see respiratory failure if the low phosphate levels are severe. And you often see that on the boards as well, where they'll give you some symptoms and they'll want you to say, what are the phosphorus levels? What are the calcium levels? So paying attention to that is important. Yeah. Yep. Um, Vitamin D toxicity is pretty rare um, outside of inappropriately high or continued use of high-dose supplementation. 
and the symptoms are largely related to hypercalcemia. Acute symptoms can be confusion, polyuria or polydipsia, anorexia, vomiting, or weakness. Um, You can have pancreatitis related to hypercalcemia. Chronic symptoms of vitamin D toxicity can include nephrocalcinosis, bone demineralization, and uh, chronic abdominal pain or uh, bone pain. Overexposure to sun will not cause vitamin D uh, toxicity. So those of you that over tan in the tanning salon, you don't have to worry about vitamin D toxicity. You may want to worry about some other things. What a relief. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. So we've talked about vitamin A and vitamin D. Uh, We'll move on to vitamin E. This one will be uh, relatively quick. Vitamin E is also uh, your tocopherol, so alpha and gamma tocopherol. And alpha tocopherol is the form that is typically found in foodstuffs and has the highest biologic activity. It's found in oil-containing grains, plants, and vegetables, as well as eggs. There's a few mnemonics I like to remember with vitamin E. So one is erythrocytes explode, so E and E, which is for hemolytic anemia. You also can see a myopathy, but it is a skeletal and not smooth muscle myopathy. So there's two E's in skeletal. And you can see muscle weakness associated with this skeletal myopathy. We also see neurologic disorders with vitamin E deficiency. And the way I like to try and remember this is a tuning fork with the middle portion of the letter E inverted 180 degrees. And uh, that then makes the form of a tuning fork. And you can see depressed vibration and position sensation, thus the tuning fork. But that's also just kind of a way to remember that there are neurologic manifestations. And these can include ataxia, hyperreflexia, and peripheral neuropathy, as well as imbalance and coordination issues. Uh, toxicity with vitamin E is pretty rare, um, but I will mention it as that often people utilize vitamin E as an antioxidant, and they may take high vitamin E supplementation. It is thought that vitamin E may increase your risk of bleeding, especially if taken at high levels, and has been associated with hemorrhagic stroke and an increased risk of all-cause mortality if used excessively for prolonged periods of time. So vitamin K, I think, as we all know, um, is the classic coagulation fat-soluble vitamin. So it's obtained from your diet, but is also produced uh, within the intestines by intestinal bacteria. So in the diet, vitamin K1 is obtained from leafy vegetables, uh, vegetable oils, Fruits, seeds, and cow milk is also supplemented with vitamin K. The form produced by intestinal bacteria is vitamin K3. This has about 60% of activity of vitamin K1, but can be important, especially in individuals who have been on chronic or recurrent antibiotic use. So it's something to keep in mind if uh, someone presents with bleeding, especially after recurrent uh, use of antibiotics. Uh, Your vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors, I always remember by the mnemonic, 2 plus 7 equals 9, and then add on 10. So 2, 7, 9, and 10 are your vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors. Protein C and protein S are also vitamin K-dependent as well. So vitamin K deficiency, I think, as we all know, is largely manifested by hypoprothrombinemia and coagulopathy. It's monitored by INR due to the vitamin K-dependent factors. Vitamin K level is not a reliable indicator. Uh, There is a test called a PIVCA2, which goes by other names as well, but it's a protein induced by vitamin K absence. I don't know that that will ever be tested uh, on a test, but do know that vitamin K levels are not reliable as they can be affected by acute intake. Treatment is typically one milligram of vitamin K per year of life, up to 10 milligrams, and I often counsel our residents to give IV if you're worried about clinically significant vitamin K deficiency. Uh, Hemorrhagic disease of a newborn is definitely something you want to keep in mind as well. Uh, Risk factors include poor placental transfer of vitamin K and decreased intestinal flora in the newborn, as well as low vitamin K content in uh, breast milk. 
kids who did not get their vitamin K injection uh, may present with uh, bleeding from the gastrointestinal tract, umbilicus, or from a circumcision if it's a male infant. And of course, as we all know, we uh, prevent this by giving a single IM dose of uh, one milligram of vitamin K or 0.5 milligrams in the preterm infant. I think we've all seen some individuals who refuse this in uh, recent times. Wow, that was a lot of great information. So with that being said, we're going to actually break this into a couple parts. So make sure you go back and listen to the fat-soluble section, um, looking at A, D, E, and K. And then now we're going to talk about our water-soluble vitamins next. Okay, that was a lot of really great info on something that I really suck at, which is vitamins. So David is back with me right now. We are going to do a quick kind of synopsis of fat-soluble vitamins, which... I didn't know when we did the intro, but I know now is A, D, E, and K. They are fat-soluble vitamins. So we're going to do just a quick recap on those four vitamins. So high yield for vitamin A, most common cause of blindness in young children. It can lead to uh, dryness of the eyes. Um, Night blindness, I learned from you guys. And then toxicity, you can have intracranial hypertension or pseudotumor. So too much vitamin A. It's pseudotumor. Great. And remember that that vitamin A is used to treat measles, according to the uh, AAP guidelines, actually. so Okay, vitamin D. Let's talk about vitamin D. This um, is really, really common. We treat our infants with vitamin D supplements because uh, breast milk often doesn't have enough in it because most of our moms are also deficient, which is, is part of the problem. We test for it by looking for 25 OHD level and PTH level. So PTH is going to be up and 28 OH vitamin D will be down. So sometimes you'll get that little chart oh, that's and they'll right. have the I've arrows for yes. PTH and vitamin D levels and they'll be going different directions. So down for 25 OH vitamin D and up for PTH is going to be vitamin D deficiency. Because the parathyroid hormone is trying to get calcium. Correct. So it's, trying it's to increased. Yep. So it's increased. Okay, and if you don't have vitamin D, especially as a child, you get rickets. And rickets is characterized by craniotabes, which is kind of delayed suture and fontanel closure. They get this weird frontal bossing. They also get widening of the physes of the wrists and ankles, and of they get femoral tibial bowing. So that's kind of that classic, classic. rickets legs that we all see. And then remember that the chest can get that pigeon chest, and we're going to show some of these pictures on our Twitter, at Peas in a Pod. The costrochondral joints can get enlarged um, on the chest, which is what gives you that pigeon chest look. Or the... Uh, Rickettic r- rosary, yes. right? Yeah, we'll show a picture of those x-rays on, on our Twitter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so AD, what's next? E. e. Okay. I, I think I know less about vitamin E than any other vitamin, which is, which is not saying much, but tell me about it. So vitamin E deficiency, you can get chemolytic anemia in preemies and then neurologic defects in older children. Um, oh, that's right. I remember E and erythrocytes. Yes, exactly. E, vitamin E, your erythrocytes explode. Who taught us that? Hemolytic anemia. Yeah. Hemolytic anemia, your erythrocytes explode with vitamin E. And then you often see uh, neuropathies and muscle weakness in vitamin E deficiency as well. That's, uh, that's, that sounds awful. Yep. Okay, last one. Vitamin E. 
Okay. Yeah, oh so my gosh. Get the, your vitamin K shots. This is probably the one that's most uh, well known by us as pediatricians. So vitamin K deficiency puts you at risk for hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. That's why we give the vitamin K at birth. The baby's gut is not really producing. They don't um, have bacteria, which is how we make our vitamin K, which is so fancy. So that puts them at risk. And Mm -hmm. then breast milk also doesn't contain a whole lot of vitamin K. So we need to help them out with that, with that shot. vitamin K doesn't cross the placenta. It's like there's so many steps that fail for vitamin K. That's why we give them that shot at the beginning. Exactly. And then just remember that vitamin K, the vitamin K defendant cofactors for your clotting cascade are 2, 7, 9, 10, protein C and S. Yep, which is all about the Coumadin, which is all I think about, which probably <laughs> none of our pediatrician friends really do. But 2, 7, 9, 10 are the factors that are vitamin K dependent and right. protein CNS. So hopefully that will give you a little bit of a summary to what we just covered because it was a lot of information. You're going to want to listen to it again because there's a lot of good information there. And in our upcoming episodes, you will uh, hear about uh, water-soluble vitamins, and you will hear about minerals. So those are in the future. Stay tuned.